0: Good morning. Have a seat. Glad you're here. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Greg, one of the pastors, and like to welcome those folks on the online campus, and we're getting ready to roll here. Yeah. Well, we have uh, an apparent president-elect, and um, I want to take a minute just to uh, just acknowledge that you know we, we took time to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Part of the big idea in that is to acknowledge that first and foremost, if you're a follower, an active, intentional follower of Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom first and foremost. And then I think going through Ephesians, one of the reasons for doing that is also to acknowledge that first and foremost, we're, we're part of God's kingdom, we're part of this thing called the church, the people of God first and foremost. And so, I was listening this last week to a pastor that I have enjoyed for a few years now, one of his sermons, and he had what I thought was some really good advice, that I'm just gonna take the liberty of passing on to you for what it's worth. This is what he said. If you're a believer and you're a Republican, then critique your own party first. Don't critique the other party, critique yours. Where does your party not live up to the kingdom mandate? If you're a believer, a Christian, who is part of, uh, 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 aligns with the Democratic Party, critique your party first, not the other party. Same with Libertarian, uh, same with Green. I'm just trying to think of all the parties that were on the ballot, right? whatever party you're affiliated with, critique that party uh, first and foremost before you critique others. I just thought, wow, that, it's simple, kind of. Maybe hard, uh, but I liked that, so I did want to pass that on to you. And I'd like to open up today just by praying for our country. You know, I think um, we still have this political divide, cultural divide at some level, and, God's up to something, isn't he? I mean, he wants to, he's doing something, and I just want to, I want to be sensitive to what he's doing, and I want us to be sensitive. I want the whole country to be sensitive, so we'll just pray to that end, okay? Lord, you are up to something, um, and we want to be tender-hearted uh, before you and before one another. We want to hear what you're, want, what you're doing, what you're saying, and we want to do that. Help us, Lord, Uh, we we can't do this on our own. And also as we jump into Ephesians here, Lord, help us, speak to us. You be the primary teacher in these next several moments. And we do commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Trying to get up here, without spilling the water. So there was this little girl, and she had just seen Snow White for the first time. And so she wanted to retell the story to her mother. And she's telling her about Prince Charming, how he arrived on this beautiful white horse and kissed her out of that deep slumber that she was in. And then she said to her mom, Mom, do you know what happened next? And her mom said, yeah, I do. They lived happily ever after. To which the little girl said, no, mom, they got married. That didn't generate the kind of laughter that I was hoping for. Maybe my timing's a little off this morning. But today, we're going to talk about marriage. As you heard the verses read, we'll be addressing that from... Christian marriage from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 is what they read. Just by way of review to set the context of chapter 5, chapter 5 is a call, an invitation an admonishment for all Christ followers to love and serve and defer and submit to one another. Last week, we spoke about the first few verses in Ephesians 5. Verses one and two in Ephesians 5 say this, if you remember correctly uh, and see it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Now, another familiar passage that most of you will be familiar with is Philippians 2, five through eight. Similar passage, but Paul expands a little bit of what he's saying to the Ephesians here. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, people, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's interesting here that he's, he's not interested in, his, in asserting his equality. He's more concerned with being a servant. And that has a, that has a whole other trajectory of what we could talk about from there. But what we see in Philippians 2 is that Jesus is serving and deferring to the other persons of the Trinity. And about a month ago, we we saw that Ephesians, an an underlying uh, sub-theme of Ephesians is Trinitarian, that every few verses talks about the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and how Trinitarian it is. And so what we see here is Jesus is serving and deferring to the other persons of the Trinity, Philippians 2, and Jesus, and the Trinity, each person of the Trinity have these distinct roles, and they continually honor and defer to one another. What we'll see in our passage today is that husbands and wives have distinct roles, and are to honor and defer to the other. And then verse 21, the last verse from last week, it's, a, it's, it's an imperative about mutual submission, isn't it? be subject to one another in the fear, in in reverence, in honor, in worshipful fear and worshipful reverence and worshipful honor of Christ. And verse 21 is the way that we're to engage with one another in a general way, honoring, deferring to each other as members of the body of Christ. And then beginning in verse 22, Paul gets specific about marriage and family and social relationships. And I am aware that some of the biblical concepts that are contained in this passage have been abused. And and rather than specifically addressing those abuses today, my concern, my greater concern, is to talk about biblical marriage. If you have questions about this passage and some of the abuses you may or may not have seen or experienced within the body of Christ, if you have questions about that, then I'd like you to consider just emailing info at communitycovenant.church. And between me and the elders and the staff, we'll, we'll do our best to get back to you and, and, and either give you a perspective, a biblical perspective of where we stand as a church, or we could also point you to some resources for some further study. And so a lot of what I wanna to talk to you about today, uh, I've learned from Tim Keller. Lynn and I have been married, I was trying to think today, this morning. It's either, I'm pretty sure it's either 42 or 43 years. And we, we have what I would consider to be a good marriage. So we've, we've learned a lot about marriage. And I'd say in the last five or six years, uh, Tim Keller, for me, has been a literary mentor of mine, and I listened to him online, too. I I, I have enjoyed him. Uh, Don't agree with everything. I've never, I was telling somebody the other day, I've never read a book on theology where I agreed with every single point that somebody made. But the way that he phrases things has been really helpful for me. So, I wanted to let you know that as we get going here. So there's two main points that I would like to address today. And, and the second point has three subpoints. So the first one, the question we want the text to answer is how does the Bible define marriage? The second one is what is the primary purpose of marriage? Can you all see the screen over here? Okay. And then the three subpoints in answering spe- uh, specifically to refine us, to realign us, and to refocus us. So this is what I'd like for us to try and, I'm just nervous, but try, you see, okay, I'm good, sorry. Um, this is what I'd like for us to focus on. So we'll go back, start at the top, and work our way down. So how does the Bible define marriage? The defining essence of marriage is stated clearly in Genesis chapter two, verse 24. And Paul, as you might have made of might have noticed, quotes it in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The King James Version uses the word cleave, leave and cleave, which conveys a strength of the Hebrew verb that's used there. The word literally means to be glued to something else. In the Bible, this word means to unite someone through making a covenant. What's a covenant? This is where I like Keller. A covenant, one, one, one of the places, one of several, a deep, a covenant is a deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, and personal binding commitment. Well said. A deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, and personal binding commitment. We see covenants all through Scripture, Old and New Testament. We have an old covenant we call the Old Testament. We have a new covenant that we call the New Testament. We have horizontal covenants between people, between nations, and then there's lots of vertical covenants as well between God and individuals, God and families, and God and whole nations. So in sharp contrast to our secular culture, the Bible teaches that marriage is a sacrificial covenant between one man, one woman, that is primarily for the good of the other. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. Because when we talk about this, we we kind of emphasize, especially if you've been in the church a while, that you emphasize one man, one woman but I want to add this other piece because I think the Scripture teaches it very, very clearly. Binding promise, what? am I on the wrong one? I know, it's, if, it's, if it's off, it's me. Yeah, I think, I think I missed something here. So let me just say this again because it was like the big point and it's the wrong, I put up the wrong slide. Is it there? Boom. Yeah, thank you. My bad. Marriage, nope. Yeah, I'm not either. Marriage is a sacrificial covenant between one man and one woman that is primarily for the good of the other. That's what I want you to hear, that our marriage relationships are primarily for the good of the other. And if that's the only thing that you hear today, that would be enough for me. In ancient, more traditional cultures, family was the ultimate value couples would generally have as many children as they could in order to work the land in primarily agrarian societies. So marriage was often viewed as a social transaction that helped the larger family's interests, that people had a way of doing their duty to family, to the tribe, to society. And this, this kind of thing, this kind of perspective seems very odd and very scary to us today in the 21st century. And by contrast, our modern Western culture, we tend to value chemistry over covenant. You see how that goes? We value chemistry over covenant. We tend to stay connected to people, including spouses, only as long as they are meeting our particular needs. My observation over the last 40, plus years, is this idea of covenant is beginning to fade in our culture. The essence of biblical teaching on marriage is not so much a declaration of present love as it is a binding promise of future love. It's a promise not to expect to feel warm and loving all the time, but loving and tender and faithful and serving one another, regardless of the ups and downs of the marriage relationship or the specific circumstances that we're in. Marriage is a focused commitment to see our spouse flourish and thrive, even when it's at great cost to ourselves, exactly the way that Jesus lived it out. Finally, in defining marriage, it's important to see that Paul is saying that marriage is a precursor. It's a foretaste of a coming consummation of Jesus and His bride, the church. Here's a way we can think about it. God does not exist to make much of your marriage. Marriage exists to show the world the glory of Jesus Christ and his church, and sometimes we get that turned around. Marriage is a binding promise of future love. Brings us to number two, the question. second question. What's the primary purpose of marriage? And again, it's to refine, to realign, and refocus us. So what does it mean to refine us? The primary purpose of marriage, uh, excuse me, the primary purpose of Jesus Christ coming into our lives is to bring about change, change that we could not do on our own. Willpower, for instance, will not make a great marriage. It can't accomplish a good marriage in our own strength. Jesus wants to make us spiritually radiant and beautiful we must begin with the admission that we are broken people. That's where it's got to start, if the arc of Scripture is correct. Some of you have seen signs on churches where an affirming church, mostly mainline churches. Uh, we see that quite a lot. This church will never be an affirming church. Why is that? Because we're broken people, Jesus doesn't affirm the lifestyle of anyone, not you, not me, that we need to start where, with the idea that we are broken people. So, you, th- there's no way to affirm anyone's lifestyle. What we want to be, and I think what we are as a church, and what we ought to celebrate is that we're an accepting church. We're accepting anybody Looking at the doors right now, we'll accept anybody who walks through those doors. And we want to point them to the person of Jesus. We want to connect them to the person of Jesus and let Scripture define for them or define how to respond to God. So, not affirming, but accepting. When we see this, our brokenness come to grips with it, we can begin to recognize what the purpose of marriage is and for what our spouse has come into our life for. God wants to accomplish something. We want to be with a person who understands what God is trying to do in our lives. Here's what. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We want to be a spouse and have a spouse that sees the bigger picture of what God is doing in the relationship. What is that good work? At this point, you and I are just a shadow of what we're supposed to be and what we will be. There are certainly initial attractions, but there is also the need to see in the other person what God is wanting to create. Sometimes we get a glimpse of the future. We get a glimpse of the calling, the wisdom, the courage, the potential of another person. To illustrate that, maybe, I have never been to the Grand Canyon, never personally been there. It's on our bucket list, never been there, but I've probably flown over the Grand Canyon maybe a hundred times. Often when I've flown over it, I'm in the wrong seat or the wrong side of the airplane, or maybe I'm asleep, or, or maybe it's cloudy, but then one day, I was in the right place at the right time, and it was crystal clear outside, and I had this grand view of the Grand Canyon. It's one of those days where the captain comes on and, and says, hey, you might want to look out of the left side of the plane. And I, what, what I saw from 35,000 feet on this beautiful day was mind-boggling to me took my breath away." And I think that's how we are as married couples. Every so often the clouds part, right? And we get this grand glimpse of one another. What the other person is called to, what they're gifting and calling, and how they can flourish as a person in the context of a marriage marriage relationships. We see their potential. Christian marriage is a unique and intense form of Christian fellowship. What we need is someone who comes into our lives and says, I love you, and I am also excited about who God is making you to be. I see the great thing that God is doing in your life, and I want to be part of that. In fact, it excites me to be a part of the great thing that God is doing in your life, see how it's other-focused. That's the purpose of marriage: to refine, to cleanse, to heal, to provide perspective, to partner with God in achieving our divine potential. There's three very practical application applications. The one: expect confrontation. It's going to happen, right? Uh, I don't know if you're, a, if you're here as a married couple or something and you're one of those couples that say, we never fight. I'm like, no. No. Don't go there. I, I, confrontation, conflict is good and appropriate. We need to learn how to do it well and then the Bible can teach us how to do that. But expect confrontation. It'll, it'll bring things out in you that you never even knew were there. Uh, the a second Practical application, if you're single and you want to be married, because I I realize there's single people who are perfectly content to be single. But if you're single and you desire to be married, broaden the scope of potential spouses. In other words, tear up your list. Tear up your list, throw it away, work on yourself. Prepare yourself to be the best possible spouse that you can. And thirdly, while chemistry is important, there's nothing more attractive than to be loved by someone that you respect. The second primary purpose of marriage is to realign us. The Bible provides us with a way to complement one another in marriage for the vitality, for the enrichment of the whole relationship between two individuals of equal dignity and value. You will notice from our passage that the roles of husband and wife are distinctive. There are differences between the genders in a marriage relationship. There's no doubt in our passage that Paul treats the husband as symbolic of Christ and the wife as symbolic of the church. Paul's instruction here is designed to reverse the sin from Eden, where the woman usurped her husband's authority and the man relinquished his servant leadership, his sacrificial leadership in the relationship. And these unique roles are meant to be an expression of the unchanging gospel of Christ's relationship with the church and the church's relationship with Christ. To get more specific within this text, Paul is insisting that the husband should take on Jesus as his role model. This is, this is a really important point. Uh, guys, this is, this, is, this, is, this is a big deal that we take on Jesus as our role model in the marital relationship. And I don't have to tell you, I hope, what Jesus did on our behalf. He went to the cross. I have a friend who who says this. I I think I've said this before, and it relates to leadership issues. But this is what he says, the real leader, is the first one to the cross. Whatever context you're in, marital, church, politics, I don't care. The real leader is the first one to the cross. And I think that's our calling, guys, is to be the first one to go to the cross. Here's what N.T. Wright says. I adapted this. The church became the bride of Christ, not by being dragged off unwillingly, but because Jesus gave himself totally and entirely for her. It was an act of complete self-abandoning love. Can I just share that one more time? The church became the bride of Christ, not by being dragged off unwillingly, but because Jesus gave himself totally and entirely for her. It was an act of complete self-abandoning love. And T. Wright, that's our call, guys. You can't do it on your own, I know I can't. We need God to help us in this. Number three, to refocus us. Third primary purpose of marriage. In both the Old and New Testament, God is described as a husband, and his people are often described as the bride. It's not a metaphor, it's all pointing to Revelation 19, specifically verses 7 and 8. Someday, the marriage supper between God and his bride will take place. We've been calling this the consummation as we've taught about the kingdom way back to going through the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus established the kingdom of God on the earth, and he's going to come back to consummate the kingdom of God on the earth. This is that marriage supper is the consummation of the kingdom. And remember, we have the privilege and the responsibility of living in that in-between period of time between the establishment and the consummation. Sometimes it's called the church age. Human marriage is designed to refocus us. And, and to point to that ultimate marriage. Even the most, here's a Kellerism, uh, I call it cool Kellerisms. Even the most wonderful, rapturous episode of marital love is just a dim hint of the ecstasy and cosmic joy of falling into the Lord's arms. Let's get that again. Even the most wonderful, rapturous episode of marital love is just a dim hint of the ecstasy and cosmic joy of falling into the Lord's arms. That's where we're headed. That's what all of this, including marriage, points to are those moments. Unless we see this that that's where we're headed, we won't be single well, and we won't be married well. Singles, whether you are desperately wanting to be married, or as I said before, perfectly content with not being married, either way, know that this ultimate marriage awaits you, that it's coming. And marriage, don't try and get from your marriage what you can only get from Jesus in a marriage. My wife, Linda, has been a wonderful example of this to me. She seems to be differentiated enough to get from God what she needs from God and then let me know, in some very courteous, grace language, what she expects of me. She's really good at it. As we draw this to a close, the great mystery, it talks about the great mystery The great mystery Paul identifies in Colossians, I think it's 127. The great mystery that he keeps referring to through Ephesians is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. The great mystery in marriage though is not that it's hard. Our relationship with God and one another is and will continue to be hard and glorious. They go together. Hard and glorious go together. The mystery is that marriage helps us to better understand what the gospel is truly about. Again, God doesn't exist to to make much of your marriage. Your marriage exists to make much of God. I would like you to notice kind of Almost final thought. Notice in our text for today that it does not say who should have the final decision in important marital decisions. It doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. It would be easier, right, if it just said. The husband makes the final say. The wife makes the final say. But if the whole idea is that we work to and continue to work together to figure out what God is saying to us. I think we need to keep the Trinity in mind here. They are constantly honoring and deferring to one another. I think we must also keep in mind what Jesus accomplished for us, this complete self-abandoning love that he demonstrated. He went to the cross on our behalf. And so to wrap this up, I would say that If you're here today, if you're watching online, and your marriage is struggling, or it's even showing the beginning signs of struggle, get some help. I would say the first thing to do, every marriage has ups and downs, right? And in this season of COVID, you know, some marriages are really struggling right now. I'm gonna be gone from home for three weeks. And I think Linda was maybe happy that I left. But the point being, I don't think that's actually true. At least that's what she told me. The point being, marriages go up and down, but here's here's what needs to happen if you're struggling. Things are starting to fray or first thing you do, get on your knees together and admit you can't get there from here. Admit it to one another, admit it to God. And if you don't see a way through at that point, get some help. And I would say a great opportunity is to get in a community group. Get with other people who are a little bit like you. Be connected. Build a safe place where you can share honestly and be real about what's going on in your life. And then finally, if you're here today or, or watching online and you never made a personal commitment to the person of Jesus Christ, then what I would do is urge you to do that today. Here's a sample prayer. There's a ton of them. There's not one, right? Lord, I've tried to do life on my own, and I really want to become the man or the woman that you have called me to be. I confess my sinfulness to you, and I repent of my sins, and I surrender my heart and my life to you today, in Jesus' name, amen. So let me pray, and then we'll close with some worship. Lord, a lot of things are hard right now. In our lives, personally, families always have issues. Churches have issues. Our nation, our world, there's issues, there's stuff. There's craziness, there's weirdness, there's sadness. And so Lord, we, we surrender afresh to you. I surrender my heart to you afresh. When you think about that, that's kind of a scary prayer. I surrender my heart afresh to you. I want to see who you are. I want to become that man that you have called me to be. And Lord, As a church, we want to give you permission to speak to us. Show us what you're doing. Show us what you're wanting, that we might be responsive to you in this season. I pray that for our country too. Again, you're up to something. You didn't cause COVID, but you're using it. And all the other strife that's going on, you want to use it, so, Lord, we We want to hear. Thank you that wisdom is ours for the asking. Thank you that discernment is ours for the asking. So we do ask for that wisdom and discernment. I pray that you would strengthen marriages in our church, that you would create an atmosphere of safety where we can talk about struggles, fears, where it's okay to not be okay. So we commit it to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.